Health is Wealth with Dr. Mike on 105.9 The Region. You're listening to 105.9 The Region, and this is Health is Wealth with Dr. Mike Carozza. I'm Station Manager Tina Cortez. Recently, Humber River Hospital announced that their intensive care unit was COVID-19 patient-free for the first time since March 14th. This is great news, isn't it, Dr. Mike? That's right, Tina. That's amazing. Um, I'm so thrilled and, uh, you know, so so happy that this is uh, what's happening. I think a lot of people are doing the right things. Um, and, uh, and you know what, they're, you know, hand washing is really important. You know, I, I think a lot of people are also covering up, uh, doing their quarantine if they have to, uh, if they've left the country, whatnot. And I think, I think it's, a, it's part and partial a lot what the, you know, what our community is doing as well. So, um, right now actually joining us uh, from Humber River Hospital is Ronak Gandhi. He's a clinical practice leader for critical care. And I'd like to welcome him to the show. Welcome, uh, Ronick. Hi, thank you, Dr. Mike, Tina. How, how are you both? We're good, thank you. Well, we're, yeah, we're doing well. And, and uh, Ronick, I mean, congratulations on this uh, amazing achievement. Um, it must be a tremendous relief. Yes, yes, thank you so much. And uh, first of all, I'd just like to say that it's an honor to speak on behalf of Humber River Hospital and also the critical care program here at Humber River Hospital because it is a relief. I mean, we've um, we've been down in the trenches, and um, you know, it's been a lot of hard work, a lot of diligence, a lot of change, and revision. And to have, especially in our ICU, a staff of nearly 200, uh, wow. Wow. and also allied health team members uh, such as physio, dietitian, social workers, all key members of our team, and the physician groups. It's a lot of people that need to make changes to what they're used to, and um, you know, we've been challenged, but we're very, very happy to now come out of it in one way um, together. That's fantastic. Could you describe for us your role as the clinical practice leader for critical care? What exactly does that involve? Yeah, sure. So um, I like to think of myself almost as like uh, the bridge between practice and where guidelines are, right? So as a clinical practice leader, part of my work is to work with the staff and also um, engage with the leadership team as well, such as the unit managers, directors, and et cetera, to kind of inform um, the practice and kind of bring more rigor to the practice at the front line. Um, And it's all about kind of aligning practice with policies and evidence-based guidelines. And I think that during COVID, uh, myself as a clinical practice leader in the critical care unit, as well as my peers around the hospital in their respective units, really did have to push hard to kind of resonate with the staff and kind of make sense of this whole thing, which was so ambiguous from the beginning. Can you tell us what it was like inside the hospital for your 200 or so colleagues at the height of this pandemic? It's... (laughs) It was um, it was stressful. It was stressful because there was a lot of um, worry. There were a lot of uh, personal sacrifices that individuals were making um, in their personal life as well to keep themselves safe, to keep the people around them safe as well. Um, and with it too, you know, came a lot of stress in um, just being here and doing a job or doing the work that they're so used to doing and for that have that they have experience doing. It became one of those things where everyone was thinking twice before 
giving a medication, thinking twice before stepping foot in a certain room. And, you know, to a certain degree, we needed everyone to think twice, especially right now, to kind of do that point of care risk assessment to say, hey, am I safe? Am I safely going into this? And when that safety, that individual safety becomes a little bit um, challenged or doubted, that brings you know, a, lot of, um, a lot of stress. Um, but I, and that's one of the things that we're really proud of as well coming out of this now is our ability to work with our staff and the staff to work with us as the leadership team here to have open conversations, to reach out to the different experts and inform our decision making. And we are so, so proud that there has been no nosocomial um, spread from patient to staff within our ICU in spite of so many patients that have come through our way. And first of all, I mean, I'd like to just um, obviously not only congratulate you, but really just take my hat off and applaud the entire staff, doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, dietitians, your entire team, even yourself, and every single member uh, volunteer at the Humber River Hospital and all the hospitals across, basically across this country, I'd like to just tip my hat and say, you know what, if it wasn't for you people, you know, to save the lives and, and be right there in the forefront, because, you know, it's very challenging to say, you know, hey, let's get right in this. And you said it right at the beginning. You said, you know what, Ronick, you said, hey, we've been in the trenches, and you ain't kidding. I mean, this is a very different kind of war. Um, but it is definitely a war, and a war that's actually taking lives. Um, and thanks to you guys um, and, and your team and, and all the uh, hospitals around the country, but, you know, the first-line workers especially, I mean, we, we just, um, are, you know, we're so grateful, and we can't, uh, we can't thank you enough. And I I'm, I'm think I'm speaking for not only our listeners, but our entire community as well. So um, I just wanted to, to tip the hat to that, uh, Ronick. Thank you. Thank you. Very much appreciate it. And, you know, it just brings me to, you know, ask the question, how are your healthcare colleagues? How are they keeping? Because, you know, I see some of these people in practice and, I've, I've, you know, we do a lot of telemedicine and it's like, and I know some of these frontline workers where they barely want to just hug their own children when they come home after a hard shift because they don't know who they come in contact with. And some of them have little ones and loved ones and family members that they actually can't associate with. And uh, I know what that's like. Um, you know, when I open my practice doors uh, and, and my family, there's a lot of my family members personally that know that I, I have to open my practice doors because, you know, we have to help patients. We have to, we have to get back. There's a lot of people that didn't want me over their house. And it's understood and understandably so. So, I mean, how are your healthcare colleagues, how's your teammates, like how are things uh, keeping with them on their personal level? That's a great question. That's a great question. Actually, um, to be honest with you, I haven't seen some of my friends personally in months, you know, since before March. And it's one of those things that I think for myself and perhaps some others as well, maybe we take it for granted, you know, seeing somebody or going out of our way to, you know, keep in touch. And all this really kind of brings all that into the forefront of how extremely delicate it is and how quickly things can change. Um, we did notice that amongst our staff here as well where they were making sacrifices and these were extremely challenging times to a point where 
the sacrifices that they were making and that some of the healthcare workers, not only at Humber River Hospital and the ICU here, but across the board have made um, to, to keep their families safe, to keep their loved ones safe at home, um, is really commendable and very brave of them. But at the same time, it does affect them because because it's, there's affection, there's a, there's a uh, kind of, it's like a magnet, right? You're just drawn to the people that you've connected with and you're hoping that you don't get them ill. So there's a lot of that uh, feeling that our staff did, um, did go through. Fortunately, we did put things in place for our staff to distress. So we brought in an ethicist, we brought in chaplaincy services as well. We celebrated nursing week as well. And with that, we kind of wanted to make it a nod to towards the nurses. We wanted the nurses to speak and talk about their experience. What makes them proud to be a nurse, right? So the sacrifices that they have unfortunately had to make, some of them, um, in light of the greater good, is reminding them for what the value is. And to the value of being a critical care nurse was something that, you know, through all of our different initiatives, um, so something that kind of resonated and was a reminder for the staff as well as to why we're doing this, you know. Um, the job in itself is extremely important. Um, there have been so many patients that have um, come out the other end successfully and there have been a lot that haven't, unfortunately. So our staff, in light of, you know, visitation limitations that have come from recommendations from public health, have had to become like family members to these sick ill patients, have had to communicate over the phone and through video chat and the different technological um, advances that we have here to keep the families informed, to console them, to uh, you know understand and hear them out as well. So they've been having to take a lot of emotion on. Um, so it's they really starts to weigh on their shoulders. It's a great accountability. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Ronick Gandhi, clinical practice leader for critical care at Humber River Hospital. Ronick, if I can ask you, can you describe some of your most difficult moments, whether that involved patient care, uh, patient families, or your own colleagues? What can you tell us about that part of this story? Sure. So my experience as a critical care nurse as well um, in the critical care unit here, um, we're used to rapid changes in patients, uh, their clinical conditions. Um, with that said, we're also a center that used to have 24-7 visitation policy, so the families did have a lot of opportunity to stay informed with how their loved one is actually doing while even being in ICU. You know, because of public health recommendations and the limitations of visitors coming in to the ICU, that was really challenged. And with that said, the rapid deterioration of these patients in ICU meant that there were hard conversations that needed to be had. I do remember one experience um, uh, where a patient uh, was with the nurse and uh, was rapidly deteriorating. At that point, was not intubated, so was not on a uh, ventilator uh, to help with their breathing. But that was the next step, and that was the recommendation from the physician. So that patient took their cell phone and called their loved one and told them that, um, so this is what's happening. I'm going to have a breathing tube put down, and, um, you know, 
I just want to tell you that I love you if I don't have the chance to. And that really hit home um, because after that, the, the physician did speak with the family member as well. And it was extremely sad to know that the family member also had some limitations in which they were not safe enough to come into the hospital at the time. But in that case, you know, my heart went out to the patient. My heart went out to that situation. The nurses held the hand of that patient, um, continued to talk with them as well. And even um, put up, and later we got some things in the mail, like home photos and such, that were put up inside the patient's room as well. Um, it's just extremely sad how quickly things change. And these kind of moments in time where you know, you can't have your loved one with you, that really, really hit home. And um, it was extremely sad. And I think that the, it's been one of those things that luckily through our moral distress uh, talks and our huddles and ongoing communication with the staff, that staff are able to now talk about these things and let it off their chest of how badly they felt or how sad they felt in that moment and what they did about it really did help a lot of the staff um, kind of it helped validate what they were doing in that moment, as heavy as it might have been. So just before we wrap things up, Ronick, we have a couple of quick questions. You know, the first one is, yeah. what is your view on masks as, you know, cities across the province are making masks mandatory in indoor public places? And we also would like to know from your perspective, do you expect that second wave? Um, so my opinion on masks, um, I do think it's extremely important. Uh, we do have a, a new guideline here in the hospital even that when we're going down to the cafeteria or even going towards the parking lot uh, where cars are parked, then you're wearing a mask. Now, um, masks are extremely important because it's to keep one safe and keep the person that they're communicating with safe as well. And what we've learned from this whole experience is that people need people. <laughs> we are social mm -hmm. beings and out of being a, being a social person at any level, um, whether introverted or extroverted, I think that there's care that goes into that person you're with as well. And if that means that putting on a mask when communicating with them or with anyone, I think that that's probably, in hindsight, a good thing to do, at least until things are a little bit more settled. Mm -hmm. In terms of a second wave, um, as a hospital perspective, <laughs> Uh, I do think that we are prepared, we are ready, and um, given the opportunities that have been learned uh, from this past experience, I think that a lot has been put in place to ensure that the staff, the physicians, all social workers, respiratory therapists, everyone here is prepared and understands the rigor of safety and their own safety when it comes to donning and doffing PPE or how to respond to a certain clinical change or condition of the patient. Well, thank you so much for your work and joining the show, Ronick. It was a true honor to have you on the show. Thank you, Dr. Mike and Tina. Thank you. I really appreciate the conversation, and thank you so much for um, for listening to our stories. You know, I think um, it, it feels really good to share um, the successes and, um, you know, to just let the public kind of understand um, our perspective from inside the trenches. Yeah. 
Thanks so much, Ronick. When we come back, reducing the risk of COVID-19 when you leave the house. Stay with us. This is Health is Wealth on 105.9 The Region. Hi, I'm Miranda Malasani. Health is Wealth with Dr. Mike is brought to you by Nature's Emporium, your neighborhood health food store offering everything natural and organic. Make it your one-stop destination for freshly prepared meals, clean beauty products, nutraceuticals, and nutrient-dense options in every aisle. You're listening to 105.9 The Region, and welcome back to Health is Wealth. Over to Dr. Mike with today's next guest. Thank you, Tina. Our next guest is Ashani Nass. She's a freelance journalist. And a recent article for Chatelaine Magazine is likely something we have all struggled with lately. Of course, you know, how to reduce the risk of COVID-19, you know, during things that we're trying to obviously open up, if you will, our bubbles, you know, during play dates or real dates if you're single. And, you know, visiting with people like our grandparents or our family that we haven't seen for a while. Thank you for joining us on this Health as Wealth uh, segment, Ashani. Oh, no problem. Happy to be here. So we wanted to start our chat. Like, let, let's start discussing a few things. I mean, obviously there's this bubble talk, you know. Uh, I remember, um, I guess a couple of weeks ago, my wife started talking to me about bubbles and, you know, who do you want in our bubble? Because we can start bubbling with people. So, like, this is, this is a new concept, right, this new idea of bubbling with somebody. And so she said, if you had to bubble with somebody, who would that be? And then there's risks with those individuals you want in this bubble because that, that person who commits to your bubble has to pretty much be exclusive to you, but that may not be the case, right? Yeah, well, so the article that I did really looked at a few scenarios where it can be really tough to figure out um, what the risks are with those bubbles and or the interactions that we're having as we're starting to come out of lockdown. So one thing that really struck me as we're talking about these things, um, as we're starting to kind of re-enter the world, so to say, is I spoke with Dr. Susie Hotha. At, uh, she's the medical director of infection prevention and control at uh, University Health Network. And she said basically there's very little that we can do that has no risk. And I think that's where a lot of that anxiety comes from Um, and a lot of those discussions about, you know, how do we form a bubble, who's in our bubble, what can we do within the bubble, what's safe. Um, There's very little right now with the risks of COVID-19 that has absolutely no risk. It basically would require us to stay home and not interact with anyone who's come into contact with other people um, at, at a closer distance than two meters. So what it comes down to is risk mitigation, and that's something that I had to learn a lot about through this process, and I think we're all kind of learning through doing right now. So when we talk about risk yeah, mitigation, no. um, Ashani, what about, you know, when you are arranging those play dates, are they supposed to be just outside? We can't have the kids together inside the house anymore? So as a preface, I am definitely not a medical health expert, so I definitely advise people to keep up to date with their the guidelines in their province and the federal guidelines, whatever is um, being recommended at the time for their area. That is definitely what they should abide by. What I was told um, in terms of risk mitigation, so lowering that risk, yes, outside is better than indoors, and we're seeing a lot of provinces discussing things like mandatory masks indoors because physical distancing can be really tough, um, and 
to just the risk of um, potentially infecting or being exposed to the virus is higher indoors. So in general for things like playdates, outdoors can be better. And then also thinking about what are the activities we're doing. So, you know, Frisbee for example, it's not the greatest activity because you're holding a disc, then you're passing that disc to another person. So that might not be the best option, but things like kicking a soccer ball back and forth or maybe hiking, um, water gun fights, anything that you can still maintain a bit of distance, but it's still a fun activity. Charades is also one that came up. Those are the types of things that can still happen, still be really fun, but are also lowering that risk a little bit. I mean, you know, I have young kids, and I think the biggest thing is, is that, Dad, what do we do when we see cousins? I just want to give them a hug, they say. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we got together for the first time, and it's been literally months, uh, was this past uh, weekend. And uh, we, got, we got together with, with um, our family and our extended family that we haven't seen in a while. And so, you know, we, we, we were outside, like you mentioned, and we really just, um, you know, didn't play any sports, but we just, you know, sat down um, and, and just enjoyed one another's company. But, of course, you know, you, there, there's something about that human interaction that, even though you're right there with somebody, even maybe you haven't seen your mother in a long time or your grandparents, there's just something about just wanting to give that individual a hug. And, and of course, that's um, something that, um, you know, we have to all uh, be careful. Um, but it's, it's still that human interaction that all of us are longing. Um, and um, it's unfortunate, really, it is. For me, as soon as I established who was going to be inside my bubble, which was primarily my dad, um, because we both live alone, we, it, when it came to assuming that risk, we just, um, because we were going to be in each other's bubbles, we just hugged. And I, th- I don't know that that's the recommended um, approach. Uh, I know some people who prior to seeing um, if they're going to hug somebody or if they're going to introduce someone into their bubble, they you know, quarantine for 14 days just to make extra sure. Um, In terms of the masks reducing actual uh, transmission, um, if you're being that physically close, I actually don't know the science around that, whether it's um, safer or not safe. So it's it's tough to comment on that for me. I will say in in Toronto, uh, I know right now they're discussing uh, making masks mandatory in indoor spaces um, just to, to... increase that safety measure. Um, so you know what, I think it's, it's one of those things, it comes down to looking at the regulations, looking what's possible for you, and looking for the circumstances in which you've been living. Like, have you been interacting with a lot of people? Are you a healthcare worker? Are you um, living on your own? These are all factors that can increase or decrease your risk. Now, what about in terms of those real dates and then visits to family members, whether it's grandparents or parents? What did your interview suggest in those scenarios? Yeah, so these are quite complicated scenarios, especially with a dating, because if you were dating someone prior to COVID and you weren't living with them, you all of a sudden had to have some pretty serious conversations. So I spoke with a couple in Toronto who... Um, they had been kind of casually dating since November. And as soon as the pandemic hit, I think like a lot of us, they immediately separated. And after a couple of weeks, they realized, you know, this isn't sustainable. We need to make a decision here. So it forced them to have a conversation about exclusivity. 
Um, so, you know, not dating other people. And then in those early stages, um, trying to find ways to, again, mitigate that risk when at, at that time we really weren't supposed to be interacting with anybody, um, but for their relationship that just wasn't feasible. So um, they kind of were operating under that bubble model before that was even formalized. And then as soon as that became um, a public kind of uh, encouraged approach, um, her family, the girl's family and um, her boyfriend are now all in a bubble together. So it, it can be really tough. It's especially tough. I, Dr. Hotha uh, mentioned that she feels particularly sympathetic towards people who are dating but not necessarily seeing someone seriously yet because it just adds this new complicated factor of, okay, we're seeing each other, we're talking, but before we even kiss or hug, we have to decide whether or not we're willing to accept that risk. Um, it's, it's tough because there's no easy answers here. There's no, you know, groundbreaking new findings on what they can do. It's really just wrapping it, your mind around whether you're okay with that. So I think it's really complicating things like dating. When it comes to seeing elderly parents, um, particularly those, you know, who are maybe just living at home. They're not in a care facility, but they are in that risk group, so 65 plus. Um, things like uh, wearing a mask can be particularly important, seeing people from a bit of a distance. So I spoke with one family in Vancouver who, because um, the grandparents are, you know, in their upper 80s, 90s kind of age bracket, um, they waited a really long time uh, to even see them outside, and even then they would be wearing masks or, you know, maintaining even more than two meters distance. Um, Dr. Hota had mentioned, you know, if you're going to go inside and people are a bit higher risk, try and keep the windows open, keep ventilation good, wear masks if you can, have the uh, elderly person wear a mask if they can tolerate it. Um, frequent hand washing, wiping surfaces, these are all good practices. They're pretty basic, but... Um, you know, these are things that can be applied to all situations to just try and reduce the risk as much as possible. Well, you know what? I, I loved the article, and I just would like all our listeners to probably read it because you did a lot of research on it, and I think it's great. Where can our uh, listeners, if they want to read the full article or connect with you, where can they do that? Uh, thank you so much. And they can read the full article on Chatelaine.com. We're doing tons of stuff on uh, COVID-19 and those frequently asked questions, those um, challenges that we're all facing. So definitely encourage everyone to check out Chatelaine.com. And uh, for me personally, um, people can follow along with my work at on Twitter, and I'm just at Ishani Nath. That's terrific. Thank you so much. And Dr. Mike, just before we wrap up the show, if our listeners want to connect with you or want more information about Apple Med, where can they find you? Well, they can reach us at 3560 Rutherford Road here in Woodbridge, Ontario. We're a full-function clinic where we get you from your rehabilitation. Obviously, a lot of people have been home during this COVID, so you know we, we're, we're happy to say that our full rehabilitation clinic, including, including our chiropractic services and our physiotherapist service and our massage therapy are up and running, um, including myself as a naturopathic doctor. We're here to help all of our patients, of course, you know, come out of these, um, you know, this COVID-19, and hopefully we can try to come out on top. Um, they can reach us at 905-417-4000. AppleMed.ca is our uh, website uh, and see our various practitioners. But they can check us out on Instagram at AppleMedClinic. 
and see our various YouTube channels as well for shows like this that, that are educational. That's our show for this week. Previous episodes of Health is Wealth on 1059theregion.com. Thanks for listening. Looking for a one-stop shop to eat well and live better? Nature's Emporium has it all. 100% certified organic produce and fresh meals made daily. Visit Giuseppe's Juice Bar and Bistro and shop every aisle for nutrient-dense, allergy-friendly groceries to eco-conscious options. We offer clean cosmetics and we have York Region's biggest selection of nutraceuticals. Most importantly, we have a team of health professionals in all four locations to help you on the road to good health. For more information, visit naturesemporium.com.